Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hi, this is Stu Hodum with Believe in the Media Guide on the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? On the eve of the NFL draft, Seton Hall University's Center for Sports Media hosted a panel discussion entitled The NFL Money, Power, Respect. Toward the end of the 90-minute discussion, news broke that the Green Bay Packers traded quarterback Aaron Rodgers to the New York Jets. The seismic story reaffirmed the purpose of the panel's discussion of the league's cultural impact. With this puzzle piece in place, it renewed the focus on the future of another former MVP QB, the power of the players, and the public relations of the NFL, which accounted for 82 of the 100 most-watched U.S. TV broadcasts in 2022. While the panel discussed many other topics, we will focus on these three areas. I would encourage you to check out Seton Hall University's YouTube channel for the entire hour and a half. Hall alum and ESPN original Bob Lee welcomed ESPN analyst and reporter Kimberly Martin, ESPN analyst and two-time Super Bowl winner Damian Woody, ESPN investigative journalist Don Venata Jr., and NFL Players Association Assistant Director of External Affairs George Atala. This thoughtful discussion played out like an episode of Lee's award-winning Outside the Lines, while Woody and Martin invoked their roles on two ESPN debate shows. They addressed Lamar Jackson's status without a contract and how players could band together to realize monetary gains. Then Atala and Van Natta have an interesting back and forth on negotiations, collusion, and guaranteed contracts. Is it um, just the generational uh, differences you talked about, Damien, about the, uh, the kids coming, young men coming into the league now, or to see those franchise values uh, that that stokes the desire to like getting a larger piece of the pie? Absolutely. I mean, these guys understand, and once this deal goes through with the Washington Commanders, these guys will know, like, wow. Ownership is making money on a totally different level as us players. And players want to have the, the mindset of, well, we're the people come to see us. They don't come to see Jerry Jones. They don't come to see Dan Snyder. They come to see us. So why wouldn't we want a bigger slice of the pie? That's what that's the conversation is going to always, from a player standpoint, is going to always come to that. People come to see us play. We are the product. So we should have a bigger piece of it. True. But this is, again, as a reporter and a former columnist and now on TV, uh, talking about NFL players, especially, Damien, you and I have sat on, whether it's First Take, Get Up, all these shows, for months talking about the Lamar Jackson situation. <laughs> and you brought up the word about disruptors. These, these young players are more comfortable disrupting. However, my frustration in watching it is, are you disrupting with a plan? Or are you just aggrieved, right? Because you had Kyler Murray, you've had Lamar Jackson still needs a deal. Jalen Hurts just, got signed, just signed a deal. You've got Joe, Joe Burrow coming up, Justin Herbert coming up. And my question is, when I look at these contracts, it's clear that NFL owners don't want to do guaranteed deals that Deshaun Watson was the outlier. But when you have a string of young, talented guys whose deals are up, selfishly, taking my reporter hat off, just looking at the optics of it, <laughs> I would love if they had all said, 
you know what? 230. And you know, and, That's the floor. And you know what, Kimberly? Here's the thing. This would have been the time to really, if, if the players, especially the quarterbacks, because we know it, the quarterbacks the ones yield that the most the power. Yeah. This would have been the time, Bob. This would have been the time. Because think about all the quarterbacks that either, that either just signed or about to sign. You had, obviously, the Sean Watson deal. Kyler Murray. Yep. You had Russell Wilson. Mm-hmm. Yep. Jalen Hurts. Mm-hmm. Lamar Jackson. Joe Burrow, who's coming up. And Herbert, Justin Herbert. Coming up. So you have all of these superstar young quarterbacks. Imagine if those guys had, I don't know, just kind of had a powwow and just said, guys, let's, 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 let's yield our power. But Let's doesn't that speak to the NFL's, the power of the NFL and owners? Because look, Jalen Hurts, he just came off a Super Bowl. He outplayed Patrick Mahomes. He didn't get a Deshaun Watson deal. Like, that's still the outlier. So as much as we may, these players may want to push the envelope. What, it's, look, where's camera one? Camera one. <laughs> <laughs> hear me and hear me good. Inspiring professionals in the room. All of this is about what you're willing to do or what you're willing to give up. That's it. That's the whole game of negotiations. Those of you in the audience who want to do, be in the media, be a sports agent, get into the business anywhere, negotiate a contract at any point, you're going to get into a negotiation at some point in your life over something significant that's going to impact you, much less $200 million of, of of wealth that your family's never seen before. It all comes down to, either individually, what are you willing to do or not do to get that money, or what are you willing to give up? And that's on an individual level or a collective level. So what Wood's talking about is fascinating because there is an anti-collusion cause, a clause in the collective bargaining agreement that prevents NFL owners from colluding we don't have that restriction. So all of, the, all of the players you mentioned could actually, in theory, sit down, go play around a golf, have a Arnold Palmer of their choice, and decide we're not signing for less than X. And you know what? I'm not showing up to camp. I'm not showing up to the first game unless we get X. That's, that's how guaranteed contracts came about in every other sport. Larry Bird, for those of you who don't know, Larry Bird was the very first guaranteed contract in the NBA. He got technically less money than Moses Malone, but after Moses did his deal, Larry said, I'll take a million less, but I want the whole thing guaranteed. And everything from there became custom and practice. It's just real life. I don't know if the owners will do that. Even if there is this powwow, and I like your idea. So you have to make them do it. You have to make them do it. Yeah. But, I, but even if you make them do it, I don't think the owners will necessarily guarantee contracts to the owners. They're never going to go there. So let's play it out. What does, hey, you what does, Joe, what does Mike Brown do if Joe Burrow doesn't show up to? Well, that, that's why <laughs> no, this, run, that's that's why this run is so right? critical because you are seeing the best at the position, the most important position, and you have them coming up like ducks in a row. You talk about the, that would be the moment. But I can tell you guys that the fury at Jimmy Haslam for oh, signing yes. to Sean Watson yeah. for guaranteed mm-hmm. money among all the other NFL owners, 
was enormous. Yes. But, but you I, know what? Yes. Huge. Like, what are you doing? And especially other owners feel like, well, just because Jimmy Haslam is dumb and is going to give this much money doesn't mean we have to be dumb. But at the same time, what I will say is that Jimmy Haslam at least showed me, think what you want about Deshaun Watson, but Jimmy Haslam at least showed me, you know what? I say I want to win by any means necessary, and damn it, I'm going to try to win by any means necessary. But you, but you, you know what, Bob? Here's the, th here's the thing about, you know, I brought up players banding together and all those type of things. But you know what the league banks on? They bank on everyone out here. Yes. Their love of the game of football. And, they, and the, the one thing about the league, the league is a PR machine. Oh, I didn't know this. <laughs> <laughs> they are a PR machine. And they know, how, they know how to navigate and use it to their advantage. So even we talk about a guy like, for instance, Joe Burrow. Joe Burrow has made the Cincinnati Bengals relevant. The Cincinnati Bengals, excuse my, my French, they were god-awful. Like, they were, they were shit, basically. Yeah. No one gave yeah. a damn about the Bengals until Joe Burrow came along and turned their whole franchise around, and now Mike, uh, Mike Brown is benefiting from that, of the, the Bengals being a relevant franchise. So, but at the, on, the, on the flip side of that, he, not only does Mike Brown know this, but all the other owners know we know we have a consumer base that's just thirsty for this product. They're coming he, out no matter what, though, They're right? coming out no matter what. We had replacement players during the strike of 1987. It was 87 that, that was yeah, here. Yeah. That, that is yeah. absolutely true. They, taking people literally off out of bus stations I, to I, play in the National <laughs> Football League, and the games counted in the standings. I have a leading question for Don. Love it. Okay, here we go. And, and the... NFL owners were mad at Jimmy Haslam. What were they saying to each other? Mm. We're mm. never going to do what he just did. Which is collusion. Which is collusion. That's collusion. Has it happened since? No. Will it happen anytime soon? Very likely no. Unless somebody does as you suggest. This is what, like what Larry Bird did. I'll mm -hmm. take less but guarantee the money. Maybe, but I think even then, the guaranteed contracts is the Rubicon, that owners do not want to cross it. You, you know it, you know it, that you've been, in, in these two CBAs, that was never on the table, was it, ever? Oh, but, but guaranteed, con I mean, I don't want to go down the, the overly academic road of guaranteed contracts, but there, no professional sports collective bargaining agreement has guaranteed contracts as part of their collective bargaining agreement. It's all, based off of the individual negotiations between that athlete and the agent and the club. So it is 100% a non-starter. Our job as a union is to make as much money available to the players and try to give them as much leverage as possible. To, to that cap jump every year that happens, 10, 15 million dollars, that gives them leverage to go out and say, hey, we know there's money out there, we are forcing you to spend it in cash, pay me. But then the owners will say, hey, the difference between the NBA and the NFL is we have 53 guys on the active roster. We've got even more guys. Like, hey, Joe, if we give you 235, 
that's a lot less in the kitty for somebody else. I mean, and now we can't put together a winning team for you to win Super Bowls. Like, that's what they end up doing. Seton Hall's Center for Sports Media invites students to take part in the conversation. An undergrad summarized earlier discussion points and then had an excellent back and forth with Atala, who took the audience into a negotiation to decide what we're willing to do versus what we're willing to give up. Hi, I'm Matthew Madonna, a junior sport management major. So I want to thank you guys for being here. Uh, my question is back to Lamar Jackson. Uh, Damien, you pointed out how surprised you are that he has no offers. But Kimberly, I think you pointed out like the inherent problem that no team wants to do the legwork of the negotiating to not actually receive the player. So I'm wondering from a union perspective what you think of the franchise tag and how you want to give the players their bargaining power back? Yeah, the, the franchise tag has been in place since 1993. And again, it's a question of balancing that one issue that impacts an average of over the last 15 years, five players every year uh, directly um, versus the other priorities that you have as a union to negotiate over what will be a $100 billion CBA, right? So for, the, for Lamar, it has hindered his ability to get what he deserves or what he feels like he deserves. But for a player like Kirk Cousins. Ooh. <sighs> I was in Washington, I was like, yeah, he, he did he pretty well. <laughs> he flipped the franchise tag into a $90 million fully guaranteed contract. So it's all about how you, you know, the perspective of where you are, I think, really defines how you look at a particular issue. So let me flip it around. Would you play, if you were in my shoes, would you advise the players to play an 18th game to get rid of the franchise tag? No. Would you advise the players to take on a Thursday night flex schedule to take the franchise tag away? Absolutely not. So, so then, then you weigh, would you advise the players to go on strike to get rid of the franchise tag? Well, it's really important for the players to have their negotiating power in contracts, and strike is one of their rights to in collective bargaining, and that's just something you have to weigh, you know? That now, so if the, if the singular issue for a group of roughly 2,200 active NFL players is to get rid of the franchise tag that impacts five players, how successful do you think that strike is going to be? It could be unsuccessful, but I think it goes back to what we're talking about, the power of the NFL. The owners are able to hold this over the players. And, you know, as Damien pointed out, it's up to the players to kind of come together and try and get that power back because really the players don't have any negotiating leverage with this franchise tag, which is something for collective bargaining. Like as a union, that's what you want to get. You, like you say, you want to make the most money available for all these players. And these franchise tag, Lamar's at the point where he has no, he's going to receive no money because he's not going to be able to sign anything that he feels that he's worth. Well, he won't receive no money. He just won't receive the money that he feels like he's, he deserves or he's... He'll receive less than Daniel Jones. Yeah. Well, if he holds out, then he will receive no money. Yeah, but that would also be an exercise in leverage, right? Yeah. So going back to the power dynamics at play, our job as a union, and I'll just sort of cut to the Cliff's notes, it's called a collective bargaining agreement because you're negotiating over a 500-page document over multiple issues. So if you want to, or anybody, it's not just picking on you, but if 
people want to cherry pick one issue that is the fly in the ointment issue and think that that is going to be a rallying cry to exercise maximum leverage for the collective players to get rid of it. I'm just telling you that is a very, very uphill climb. What was the issue in 2011? Commissioner discipline. Neutral arbitration, right? That was the sore eye that everybody on ESPN was talking about was Roger Goodell is judge, jury, executioner in the NFL. We got to the bargaining table and we said, hey guys, what are you willing to give up or what are you willing to do for that singular issue? Impacts five guys a year, forget it. We'll fight them, we'll sue them, we'll make them look bad going to the PR fight. Not worth going on strike for. That's a player decision, that's not a union staff decision. The most poignant part of the program was a discussion about DeMar Hamlin's collapse in Cincinnati during a game between his Buffalo Bills and the Bengals. Lee led Woody, who discussed the player brotherhood. Atala described the player's advocacy for life-saving resources that revived Hamlin. Van Natta and Martin looked at what it took to stop restarting the contest, and Woody returned to NFL PR's narrative defining a Monday night football game that took place less than four months ago. I wanted to pick up on something in two words that we talked. You talked about public relations, the juggernaut, Woody, that um, is the National Football League in the terms of public relations sense, and also the, the risk. But we talked about risk in terms of financial risk. I'm going to talk about risk in terms of playing the game and take us back to the emotional, wrenching, and instructive near tragedy of DeMar Hamlin's experience, the player on Monday Night Football for the Buffalo Bills who nearly died on the field, and as we learned recently, it was Camosio Cortis, the blow to the chest at the exact moment that the heartbeat had the interval that almost cost him his life that night. Um, as a player, as a former player, well, I know you were watching it live. I can't imagine what it was like. As you processed that, that night, and in the days and weeks since, what do you take from all of that? Man, that, um, you know, so I just want to explain to people, as far as football is concerned, we're programmed to, even when guys get hurt, you hear a phrase say, move the drill. Just move the drill. I mean, you could, I've, I've seen it all. I've seen compound fractures where, you know, it's just a gruesome injury, ACLs, all the stuff, and nobody blinks an eye. There's compassion, but got to move the drill. Got to keep it going. When DeMar Hamlin, when that situation played itself out on the field, you could clearly tell from the player's reaction, this was not an injury. This was a health-related matter. And when, when I saw the emotion, the emotions on the players on the field, um, it scared the hell out of me at, at home. Um, it was such a surreal moment watching that whole thing play out. And as players, we're just programmed that, you know, people, sometimes people don't even look at us as human. We're, we're viewed as gladiators. We should be able to play through anything instead of, man, these guys, we're human as well. It's hard to play through stuff like that. And, and obviously with that event happening, neither sides were, were in a, in a, a mentally or emotional capacity to go out there and play that, play that, finish that game and, and for obvious reasons. But to see DeMar Hamlin, the whole 
situation play itself out from the, the days, the weeks, months afterward, um, we're a brotherhood. We're a brotherhood. Players are a brotherhood. There's only, we're spe- I always say we're a special fraternity. There's not that many guys that played in the National Football League in its entire history. And at the end of the day, yeah, we might play against each other for three hours, but once those three hours are up, we care about one another. We care about each other's, our, fam- our families hang out together, all those type of things. And for you know, myself and obviously DeMar Hamlin's brothers all across the league, to watch his uh, recovery was a huge sigh of relief because we've never seen anything like that, Bob. We've never seen anything like that happen on the football field where a guy literally, let's just be honest, he died on the field and he was resuscitated. And it's just been a, um, a very emotional journey. I know it's been emotional for DeMar Hamlin, but it's been emotional for a lot of people you know, watching the situation play itself out. And cleared to come back to uh, attempt to resume his career. Um, but you talked about controlling the narrative in a PR sense. Um, and George, at the, at, there was an award given DeMar at the Super Bowl, voted by players, but also the, the league had him front and center on the Super Bowl pregame telecast. We see him here in that overhead shot there with the president. Um, we applaud the fact that there were so many protocols in place that that medical care was there. Absent that, he, in all likelihood, we would have a different conversation. Um, when you reflect on the message, the takeaway message from that from the National Football League, George, what do, you, what do you see? I still have a hard time talking about it, candidly. I, on one hand, those protections that you mentioned and the response was in place because of the union's advocacy for emergency medical protocols. Um, and, and our insistence on having defibrillators nearby and ambulances and all of the, all of the things. Even the, even the doctors who are on the sidelines for that Monday night game were qualified in that type of response and recovery because of what we advocated for, for the players. So on the one hand, super proud of that. On the other hand, there is this um, sort of, you know, Wood talked about the family, and I, I feel like now, having been at this role for 14 years now, I'm entrenched with the players and their families, and I know that a lot of their friends and families go to the game not just to cheer for them and to support them and to wear their jerseys, but there's a part of them that worries, is my brother, son, husband going to you know, father gonna walk off the field this Sunday or Thursday night or Monday night. And I have a hard time framing it as like a, as a PR thing because I have a very sober view of what our job is as a union. And I know that yes, Damar was voted on by, but it was because of the work that he had done in the community before his incident, he was in that, he was in that mix. Um, Nobody should get it twisted. We should not be glorifying, in my opinion, the um, risks that players take to, to play this game. That should, in my opinion, that should not be glorified. It is a reality, 
it is something serious that we all have to deal with as a business and would you play like you have to deal with it mentally as a player um, but none of us should be trivializing in my opinion the um, you know or glorifying the fact that yeah he died and he's coming back like we're not this you know it's not biblical Lazarus like stuff yet Don even in the moments after DeMar was being worked on the field. There was uncertainty at that moment, at the game, whether it would continue, whether the telecast, how it would be covered. Uh, immediately, the league was presented with something that, God forbid, could have been the worst thing imaginable. Roger Goodell has told people around him, I did a profile of the commissioner, I think 10 years ago this year, or 10 years ago this spring, and I had a Hall of Fame quarterback tell me that Roger Goodell has said his biggest fear is a player dying on the field. The optics of that, what it would do to the business. And so Roger Goodell's worst fear happened that night in Cincinnati. As you say, Hamlin was dead and had to be resuscitated. And in the minutes after that, I did a story back in January about how the league handled it moment by moment. And they wanted to keep playing. Yes. You saw those guys warming up. They were warming up. Mm -hmm. They were on both sidelines. And uh, Joe Buck told a national television audience on Monday Night Football, five minutes before <laughs> yep. starting. Yep. That was put in his ear by the league office at their headquarters. And it took the coaches and the players to get together and say, we are not going back out there. Us. And the union. The, it's true. George's boss, Demora Smith, the head of the NFLPA, had a conversation with the commissioner. I reported that in the story as well. But the impulse is the game must go on. Even seeing that, and we all, <laughs> I mean, we all reacted the way you did. Like, how do you play another down? But it took about an hour, a little under an hour, I think, 56 minutes, before finally the league came around and agreed with what the players and the coaches insisted on. It was literally, I was told, a ground up decision mm -hmm. from the players and the coaches there who did the right thing. The league's impulse was to keep playing. And this is an image the, from the Oval Office that certainly um, celebrates his health, his return, and who does not endorse that and, and embrace it in your heart. But at the same time, there's a political calculation to that picture and there's a message behind it that the takeaway when you hear DeMar Hamlin, and well it should, is a great young man who's accomplished much in his life, yet you know, that's the league narrative. Because I remember even tweeting, I know they're gonna play this game, I just don't know how they're gonna be able to, because I was a columnist in Buffalo the first year that Brandon Bean became GM and Sean McDermott became head coach. So I've been in Buffalo a lot. Like, I know those guys. I don't know DeMar Hamlin personally, but watching Sean McDermott's face on TV is when I knew, oh no. Because I know Sean, I know his countenance, I know how he is normally. And I credit, in that moment, I never had more respect for Sean and Zach Taylor, the Cincinnati Bengals coach. They are wonderful at what they do as coaches. But in that moment, for them to put their guys ahead of all of it, like that was a moment to me that it still, like I could still see it all and I was just at home. I can't imagine if I was actually covering that game um, because you, why I, like, why I love this job of covering the NFL is because 
I love being able to showcase the human side of guys. I like being able to tell their stories. That's why I want to be a writer. And, and give the public a chance because we don't know, we don't get to see their faces a lot of times unless you're a high profile quarterback. We uh, the public doesn't necessarily know who you know who's Demar Hamlin. You know, um, so that's why I love covering the NFL because they are brilliant, wonderful guys that play this game. And in that moment, it still felt like, oh well, yeah, this guy is being wheeled off in an ambulance, but we still got to get back to business. And it took the head coaches to your point of saying, we're not, we're just not. There was a remarkable moment when Zach Taylor, the head coach of the Bengals, and Sean McDermott, the head coach of the Bills, were together Mm -hmm. on the sideline, and they covered their mouths, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, the way pitcher will do with a catcher. So you can't read their lips. And what they were saying behind it is, we're getting off the field. But they covered their mouths. They didn't want maybe the league office to see what they were discussing because it was that bold a move in that moment, because they were flaunting Park Avenue. Because Stefan Diggs was trying to hype up guys. Like you saw, yeah. I don't know if it was Burrow or Josh Allen, one of the QBs started throwing, started throwing, and you saw, you know, like team leaders trying yeah. to like In a get game guys dripping up. with playoff implications too, which we, you know, we forget yes. perhaps in the next spring. <laughs> you know, it's um, just bringing it back to the PR aspect. Think about this. Don mentions that it took almost an hour for the league to call it. And the guy basically died on the field. And, it's, 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 and now to spin it forward from a league's perspective, look at the PR that they've put into it, where you literally forget that whole aspect of it. The, 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 night, the, the night of where they wanted to play the game, <laughs> They basically wanted to force the players to continue to play that game. You remember that Paul Tagliabue declared the league would take a week after 9-11. You remember the worst mistake Pete Rozelle, the original, well, not the original, but the most effective early commissioner of the NFL in 1963. They, they played the Sunday after John Kennedy was killed in Dallas. So, and he uh, said it was the worst decision he made. Yeah, he lived with that for the balance yeah. of his years. These three excerpts are just a third of the entire discussion, so I encourage you to watch it all on Seton Hall University's YouTube channel. For more information on Seton Hall Center for Sports Media, go to shu.edu sports media. Thanks for listening to Believe in the Media Guide. If you enjoy this show, please subscribe and rate it wherever you get podcasts, including Believe.com. That's B-L-E-A-V dot com. I'm on Twitter at Hotem, H-O-T-H-E-M as in Mary. Stay tuned and stay safe. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S., Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu slash visit.